Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I am Scott Chaloner and you join us on another sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Alistair Beveridge, Managing Director of the Build Directory in Stockton-on-Tees. That is a building firm which endeavours to provide an all-in-one home improvement building service. Um, Alistair, very warm welcome. Welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Yeah, pleasure to be here, Scott. Thanks. Pleasure having you with us as well. And the whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering yeah. that today's generation of business leaders is going through probably one of the biggest tests of our time, I think it's fair to say, um, it would be remiss of me not to ask you just how it's been navigating the COVID-19 situation over the last few months and how that's impacted your operations. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not a it's not a, a one word answer, really. Um, I mean, I think it's been um, it's been challenging, um, but I also think it's kind of in equal measure, uh, positive and negative. Um, negative in the sense that um, you, know, you know we've made certain plans and obviously they've been hampered, but I think on mass, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships, but uh, you know, a dropping tide drops all ships. So it, you know, I'm aware that it, it's not just us. Um, as an industry, um, you know, th- there's been sort of some some misinterpreted uh, sort of uh, facts on the construction industry that you know construction uh, was somehow uh, you know going to get back faster. Um, we're a residential building firm, so we're in customers' houses, so we're not on sort of sterile building sites. So that that that's been really difficult. Um, what what I'd say as a, from a leading point of view, um, I think it's been an opportunity to have forced contemplation uh, in a way that in my in my business life and certainly in my in my adult life uh, I haven't had before. So it's given me time to sort of really get some clarity and possibly look at look at some of the aspects of the business that that probably haven't worked. We've had to really look at our overheads um, and and in in some ways go back to being a a new business again, in the sense that you know we're really sort of everything is on the table now. Um, interestingly, when this started at the, at the beginning of the year, we we actually started a, a scale up um, course. So um, it's interesting looking at looking at what, what your business plans were to what they are now. So it, it, it's been quite good in the sense that it's tested the validity of the business. Um, as you mentioned in the introduction, our business is quite rare in the sense that we're a possibly, if not the, one of the, the only one-stop home improvement providers in the country mm. and certainly in the North East. Um, so that means that our business is slightly hedged in that we don't just perform one area of, uh, of, of service. So therefore, you know, our business is designed to keep the customer for life. So we've actually had, you know, an incredible amount of people uh, you know, coming back for business, for new business, if you like. Um, so... It, it's 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 been funny. We we sort of we sort of we've been unable to uh, to do what we wanted to do, um, but on the same token, we've been rewarded by um, you know by by loyal customers, really. Um, yeah. Mm. So it's been um, some positive um, things to to take from this pandemic period, as well as, of course, the fact that it's been quite a difficult and quite a challenging, sensitive time for many businesses and many communities all over the uh, the country. Um, We've talked about, of course, the um, sort of 
this idea that the construction industry was going to recover and recover quite quickly because it is one of those key industries that sort of was continuing to work throughout the course of the uh, the pandemic. Um, when it comes to sort of safety guidelines, however, for industries such as construction to continue to operate in a safe manner, were you satisfied that where you could operate safely, you knew exactly what was expected of you to do so? Or was it just a little bit more complicated adapting in that sense? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, we have to, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. Um, and and the, the reality is that we can't shoulder that completely on the government or whoever they, inverted commas, are because, you know, every situation is different. You mentioned there, you know, the building sector coming back online, you know, quicker. In reality, though, the building sector is divided into various different sections. So if you look at construction, as I said, in terms of a sterile building site where you haven't got, if you like, um, you've got a mixture uh, of generally workers workers on their own. When you're working in residential sites, the difference is you've got workers and the public uh, in, in much bigger measure. Uh, so I think we, we've had to certainly um, you know, take take government, and government guidelines. What we actually did was we, we took uh, the measure of employing a, a health and safety consultant. It was actually really helpful to provide sort of templates for... Um, you know, risk assessments. We we spent uh, quite a big investment in um, our PPE, uh, and and actually it, it it was interesting because it it actually made us look at our sort of pre-COVID health and safety procedures and push up on them. So it's been it's been a chance to get back into the back in the gym, if you like, metaphorically, and mm. and tone our tone our our health and safety body up altogether. And what do you think ultimately the long-term effect of the pandemic situation is going to be on the construction sector as a whole? Well, I think it's going to leave uh, a lasting um, health and safety spin. I mean, we don't know how this pandemic is going to evolve. This is new to everyone. Um, what I can say, though, is in, in history, uh, you know, we can all plan. I think what we've got to do is plan for the, for the best. Um, uh, and, and and prepare for the worst. Um, we don't know what the long-lasting effects are, but what we can say is that we, we know we've got to keep up on the PPE. What we don't need as a country, not just in the building sector, but in every sector, we don't need um, to encourage um, another uh, spurt in the in the epidemic. Um, I mean, I, I have to say, in reality, it, it's tricky to, to, to be on that all the time because... You want to be safe, but you have to be productive at the same time. Um, we looked at the Construction Industry Council, um, and they've got some some pretty you know, straightforward guidelines. And reality is, it's common sense. Um, how common is common sense? I don't know. Um, also, you know, you know, it's uncomfortable. You're wearing masks. And I think the standard of PPE is going to change. Um, you know, you, you get used to you, know, you start to get used to wearing uh, masks and, and doing things in in, in certain ways. Um, so I think it's important that we don't drop our guard when we get tired. Uh, we've got to keep our guard up, um, but we've got to keep our eyes focused on productivity. Um, we've definitely factored the productivity um, into our schedule so that you know when we look at how long it would normally take to perform a certain task, it's going to take longer. So you've got to give staff that, you know, that flexibility. And you've also got to give them some autonomy um, to, uh, you know, to, to, to act as they see fit within within the guidelines, so there, there is room for interpretation. You can't be black and white. There is grey area. There's colour in the in the in the lines. Um, 
So I think it's going to, in, in summary, I think it's going to make everyone a little bit more focused on health, uh, which can only be a good thing. Um, and I think it's going to mean that we are a lot more focused on, you know, on proper productivity as well. So hopefully it's going to sharpen everyone's pencil. Um, yeah. It's often said, isn't it, that people really do bring the best out in themselves as well during a time of adversity like this. And it seems that from the way that your business, especially from a leadership point of view, has gone about adapting and pivoting and preparing itself for um, the pandemic and its impact, you've got a lot to be inspired by there. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think that um, people ultimately are going to look look to you. I think you're right, people do dig in, but not everybody does. So you've got to fight or flight. And I think that we all condition to our surroundings. And it's really important that we're not completely Pollyanna. We have to be honest with, with people, but everyone's different. You know, in, in a team of, uh, of, of builders, it's no different to a team of teachers. Um, if, you, if you think you know, bad, you get bad. If you think positive, you get positive. So I think we have to reinforce and look really good. So I always, uh, I've got it on my wall, a quote from Andrew Carnegie, the field, and he said, management is like um, mining for gold. 90% of what you see at times is, is mud and rubbish, but you've got to focus on um, on the 10% or the 1% you know, uh, of gold. And there is lots of gold out there. As you say, you know, we could focus on the fact that, you know, we've had, we've had to stop working and, you know, worrying about finances and running projects and keeping on top of schedules. But actually, we can also look at the fact that we've got a business. We're very blessed in the sense we've got a lot of business in the pipeline. We've got lots of opportunities and we have to focus on that. And as a leader, I know that I need to make sure that my people see me being real, not, you know, dismissing the fact that you know, there's been a pandemic being real, but also having solutions and being solution-driven uh, and making sure that this is just, it's just a wave the ship is not sinking. This is just a rocky wave. The ship, you know, we can't stop the storm, but we can let it pass. And that is exactly what we're doing. And while we're letting it pass, what we're doing is making sure that our ship anyway, and certainly, you know, they need to see that I'm, I'm, I'm on the ground. And one of the things I did, I'm not on the tools, um, but in the first weeks uh, coming back after lockdown, I made sure that I was on site every day with the guys. Um, and that was to make sure that, A, you know, to, to, to ease my guilt, if you like, but also to make sure that, that I knew what was going on, and they knew that we were in the we're in the front lines together, um, because you got you got to lead from the front, and I think that definitely had an effect and a sort of camaraderie um, amongst the amongst the squad, and uh, and I felt better because you can hear people's worries, um, and you can ease each other's uh, you know concerns, and I'm looking to other business people, um, mm. and certainly just just other people in general, uh, and looking for optimism. Because um, it is out there, but you've got you've got to look at it. Um, I think you yeah. you raised an incredibly important point there um, about sort of being there for people, Alistair, showing you're on an equal footing, and also being there to reassure them as well. Because mental health and well being is being thrust right back into the limelight by the uh, the pandemic situation as well. And when you know that there is sort of a storm coming that has to sort of blow over you, as it were, I mean, how is it that you sort of mentally steal yourself and others to sort of ride that storm out? Yeah, very, very good question, Scott. I mean, I think um, I, I think it's about being human because I don't know about you, but you have to, to. You can't just be sympathetic. You've got to be empathetic. So I think if you share your concerns, I don't mean that you you dwell on them. I mean that you share them and then dealing with them. I think people get a lot out of that. Um, and if, if you if you don't think you're going to pass the exam, you won't study for it. So I think it, you've got to have sort of hope in the future. So there's power in the now. Um, I'm being a bit sort of metaphoric there, but 
what I'm what, what I've done is um, I've tried to focus on the good, and I've shared. You know, we share, we share the anxiety, but then we share we, we share in finding the solution. Um, and I think if you if you went to everybody in the street, any stranger in the street, and you said, "I've heard about your problem," ninety nine of them are going to turn on because we've all got a problem. You know, so it's pointless pretending like nothing's happened and it's business as usual. It isn't business as usual, but we've got to, we've got to look at the realities. There's a positive spin on this. You know, we're still going. We've got to keep on swimming and hard hard as possible now. I mean, what I've been saying is, um, we've got lots of opportunities um, in this, and I think that um, we would be crazy if we if we didn't look at them. It's been really sad. We've had to make some terribly tough decisions. Um, there's certain people, certain aspects of the business that we haven't been able to bring back yet. There's certain parts of the business that, to be honest with you, when people talk about going back to normal, there's certain that I don't want to go back to because they weren't working. And and what happens in life, you can, you can suddenly look around and find yourself and you go, how far have we come? But on the way, you've picked up lots of things. Some of them are not all good. You know, sometimes we, we, we've sort of done really well, but we sort of we need to go on a bit of a diet because we're... we're we're carrying a little bit of excess flat uh, or excess baggage. Uh, you know, my uh, my wife went to a chat last year, and she sat sat with someone, and uh, and this lady was doing a, a talk, and she said her biggest tip was there are people who skip to work. And what I looked and I thought, who is skipping to work? Who is excited about coming back? Fears aside. And we, we need to surround our, ourselves, and I think business people, you know, it, it, profit, non-for-profit business need to surround themselves uh, with people who skip to work. Um, and I think, on top of that, I think if you're in a business now where you're not skipping to work and you're not happy, then I think this is a time for everybody to press, press the reset button. Um, this is an opportunity that we might never get again. Um, so if you're unhappy, maybe this is the opportunity to go, right, okay, you know, I can start. Does that make sense? Yeah, it certainly does. And it ties in really nicely with a quote from Nelson Mandela, actually. He once said, surround yourself with people who are better than you. And I think that actually serves as a brilliant piece of advice for somebody who is even looking to maybe start out and form a business for themselves and build a positive team of people. Um, we've talked a lot about, um, of course, your experience of the pandemic thus far, but we do know over the next sort of 12 months um, as well, Alistair, that we are going to have to adjust to a new way of life and a new way of working ultimately as well. So I would like to just touch on that before we do wrap things up on today's programme. Um, during that period of time, over the next, say, 12 to 18 months, um, what do you ultimately see being on the horizon for you in the build directory and what do you actually hope to achieve as a business? What we'd like to do is we need to we want to grow the business. Um, there's certain areas of the business that haven't been efficient and and and, and have really been propped up by uh, the parts that have. So I think what what we're going to do is we we definitely slimmed up a little bit, um, and hopefully we're gonna we're gonna build on that and just reinforce what works. Um, we're gonna we can't marketing wise we can't actively physically do as much stuff. So we're going to invest a little bit more in digital marketing, um, and this is something that we haven't done enough of. Um, now, because we're not comfortable about send, physically sending surveyors out, etc., quite as much, um, we we've got contracts to do um, some, some sort of in-store markets and things like this. Um, a lot of our exhibitions have been cancelled, so we're going to have to think outside the box. Uh, the money that we would have spent on that, we're going to reinvest that 
in, uh, as I say, in social media and, and sort of digital uh, awareness um, and our internal systems as well. Um, we, we took the opportunity while the offices are closed, we're, we're, we're going to be extending our premises, um, improving the storage, um, we're updating all the offices uh, to make sure that you know it's all energy efficient and, and sort of really just trying to, as I said before, um, look at look at our areas of weakness um, and and use this time wisely while we can because one of the issues is when everything's all go, it's very hard to work on your business when you're in your business. Um, so that, that that's what we're going to do. Plenty then to get your teeth into um, as we go into the next uh, few months, and Alistair, for sure, it sounds. Um, Playing catch. Mm. For sure. And it's like it's a positive message out there that even though it has been a very difficult and a very sensitive time for many people, there are opportunities just to take a little moment of self-reflection, push the reset button and just really think about how you're going to move out of the uh, the lockdown situation and the pandemic and really be ready to seize the opportunities that are going to be available. And, you know, yeah. just given how insightful it's been having you with us today, Alistair, to discuss exactly that. I think it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the programme with us in the future just to see exactly how things are going in a few months' time. That would be a pleasure, yeah. Pleasure. I, I really would enjoy that. It's been a real, real pleasure having you join us today, definitely. It's a shame we don't have more time, otherwise we could probably discuss it long into the no. afternoon, I'm sure. We'll get some time. We'll all stay safe. And, um, mm. and everyone will get with all your positive uh, podcasts. Is that what we need? Hopefully so, yes. It's good to, of course, inject a little bit of positivity into uh, society at this point in time and for business leaders to know that we are all very much in the same boat. And most importantly, yeah. Alistair, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do continue to take care and stay safe as well with all going on for sure. And you, Scott. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, everyone, that was Thanks. Alistair Beveridge speaking, the Managing Director of the Build Directory in Stockton on Tees. And I do reiterate that message to everybody listening in today. You are not alone and do continue to look after yourselves and others and be sensible with the lifting of restrictions because it does make a tangible difference in saving lives along the way. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with former England cricket captain Sir Andrew Strauss. Um, During his playing days, Sir Andrew joined an illustrious club of just three England captains to have secured the Ashes, both at home and away in Australia. He also racked up the second highest number of test victories for an England skipper in history. Since retiring from playing, Sir Andrew has been appointed Director of Cricket for the England and Wales Cricket Board, a role which he retains today. I hope that you all enjoy listening, just as as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Andrew himself. And that is, of course, coming up next. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White. And today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood, services to sport just last year so congratulations on that yeah thank you um now there have been ups and downs in the career like any career including public and private disagreements with certain individuals and on that front i think what everybody wants to know have you finally forgiven marcus Tresscothic for giving you that stupid lord brockett nickname <laughs> um well my recollection was that it wasn't marcus Tresscothic who gave me that nickname ah. it was actually mark butcher uh, He's but to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mm. mo- at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place. 
and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully it didn't particularly <laughs> stick other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station because, of course, in your first outing, uh, you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you really got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in a in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then, you know, I only got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to... See your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance. Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost. I'd been, I was a Middlesex player, I was mm. captain of Middlesex. All my focus was on helping Middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever. And then a week later, I've scored a test century, which is something I'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life. And then the thought of doing it at Lords in your first test match. I mean, it was literally the dream. So, and then suddenly I started thinking, wow, hold on, I'm, potentially I've got a whole England career ahead of me and everything that entails. So it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think in those early years of your career, it's so important. I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive um, mm. source of advice for me. So he was captain of Millsets a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there. Um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis... My wife, Ruth, played a, a huge mm. role, you know, and just in terms of because I, th I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it. And you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that, you know, you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world. And, uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world, nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you. And you need that grounding. And again, that can be true of any, uh, so many different areas of life. I think so, yeah. I, I mean, very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things, being with different people, sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that. But I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, 
Um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after. Because, you know, I think it's easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room, for the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey, he looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Giles, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing. I think that's such a key point though, because there's there's so there were so many people back in two thousand five that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation, especially of children and school kids, into loving that sport. And so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored 100 in that fifth test yes. match under real pressure. And that, that was one that, you know, that, that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now, obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough, and privilege, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to, and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it. 
for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership, I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. And it's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those sort of situations. Um, and when managing a team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be players when players and indeed and this applies again to so many different areas of life when individuals um think they are perhaps more important than than a team well i, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit it you lets. know I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um sort of contend with in a team environment and uh, the job of the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um but, th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in a completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a wing question, but... What advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them and that you couldn't really do without it? Just generally about leading I, I a team? I think so, Okay, yes. uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. And if, if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many. Um, because they, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, um, it doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how um, impressive you might be as a person. They will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly. Um, now, in 2015, obviously, you were appointed as director of the ECB. Uh, you took some pretty uh, major steps early on. Um, you brought in Trevor Bayliss as coach, was or was brought in. Um, you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket. Now, in the abstract, what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain, that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was... We had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hoyam Sol in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the 
all right mm. on the night and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what did the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was, I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players, but actually I found it a very different challenge because you are, so so far removed from what's going on on the ground, right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know, buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves, mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world. So that was that was a very new experience for me. Well, I think the strategy paid off, and uh, I don't know about you, but when watching that World Cup final again, as so many people did in this country, it's once again it inspired another generation of. Uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched the foundation with two focuses number one to 
fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer. These mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers. Um, five to 7,000 people each year in this country are diagnosed with these. No one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women, young women, that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers... It's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare. It's probably a misnomer. But it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about, about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it's the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary, I think it was the 15th of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the, the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers they, anyway no, i think but um no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, 
that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well, so the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience mm -hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but... In two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are, you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As, a, as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'm, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh sh of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanju, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.